Father, may we not treat this time as ordinary. May we not treat this time as just something that we're supposed to get something out of it, but may we continue to engage in this, to worship you in this time, to be teachable and humble, to receive your truth. The encouragement that's necessary, the conviction that's necessary. God, whatever is necessary to make us look more and more like Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would anoint all of us to hear your word. God, as I open my mouth, I pray that you would anoint me to teach your truth and not my opinion or agenda, not my opinion of it, but your truth. Father, I pray that you would bless this time and that you would use it, that you would transform us into the likeness of Jesus, that you would draw people who are here in person or watching online or listening later, that you would draw them into relationship with Christ if they don't know you, that they would see you, they would understand their sin their need for a savior, they would repent, confess you as Lord and receive salvation. God, please, God, may the miraculous happen out of a feeble attempt to make much of you. God, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen. In Ruth chapter four, verse 13, the first word, we're not gonna just land there. Can you imagine, guys, I just wanna preach one word. No, that's not it. The first word is the word so. And so when I was looking at this, this is this morning, just trying to figure out, okay, God, I'm finalizing some things, finalizing some thoughts. What am I, what am I supposed to go with? It's kind of like landing the plane on the story of Ruth. And when I looked at the word so, it, it hit me. How much of life, how much of their lives, Boaz, Naomi, Ruth, is summed up in the word so? Two little, two little letters that make up one small little word that sums up, gosh, a couple decades, if not more for Naomi. And how many experiences are wrapped up in those two letters? Guys, when you look at Naomi, from what we've seen so far in our journey through the book of Ruth, we have Naomi. Friends, she lived in her little hometown of Bethlehem. I know we think of Bethlehem, well, that's where Jesus was born, and it's true, and we, it must be a big place, and yet really it's just a couple hundred people. I mean, think about Podunk, where everyone, ever, everyone knows everyone's business, this is it. A couple hundred, maybe two, three hundred people. So she's lived there pretty much her whole life. And then she gets married. Like she goes, I mean, all the things that come with her growing up, this is where you live and doing all the family events and get-togethers and celebrations and heartaches and frustrations. And, and then she finds her man or her man finds her, however that worked out. They get married and they have a couple kids. And everything seems like it's going fine. And then there's financial hardship. Because a famine hits the area and they're trying to figure out what do we do as a family? See, we're in Bethlehem and there was this belief that stay in Bethlehem, that's where God's provisions are. And yet they're not seeing it. Have you been there? And when you look in the word that God will provide, God will provide, God will provide, God will take care of you, God will take care of you. And yet maybe for some you're sitting there going, when? Like I'm not seeing it. And so they think, well, we got it. let's go to Moab. When you look in the Old Testament, that's kind of one of the places God's like, I don't want you to kind of deal with those people. I don't want you to interact with those people because of how they treated the Israelites before. But they go there. And I know, as I, as I said, I've read commentators and some are like, they understand it. Others are saying, this is why all this bad stuff happened and I just can't go there. I think God's a redemptive God and there's a story to be told in all of it. So there's this unexpected move. They face financial hardship. They got to go because there's not enough to provide for their family. 
Then there's this unexpected move. Is this sounding familiar to anybody yet? And then she experiences a tragic, unexpected loss. Her husband dies. They have a couple sons already, but she loses her husband. So now her boys know what it's like to lose a dad. They watched mom as what she had to go through. But then all of a sudden her sons get married. See, it's like this ebb and flow, tough and good and tough and good. And then the weddings happen and it seems like she gets along pretty well when you look at the, when you look at the rest of the book of Ruth, that her, she gets along with her daughters-in-law. And so about 10 years there in Moab and things seem like they're turning around and all of a sudden she goes through unexpected loss again with the death of both of her sons. Is this starting to sound familiar to anybody else? What it feels like to lose a child? You said, they're, they're grown, but it doesn't matter how old your kids get, they're always a child to you, true? And so lose both of her sons. And during that time of trying to heal her own wounds, she's actually trying to heal her or help her daughters-in-law heal as well. And then, think, then they think, okay, let's go back home. But she actually tried to encourage her daughters, not just go back home, like restart your life. One does, and then we meet Ruth. When you look at all the stuff that Naomi went through, and when she comes back to Bethlehem, which is where the promises of God are supposed to be, listen to what she says in Ruth chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. When she's greeted by the women of the, of, of the town of Bethlehem, she says this, do not call me Naomi. The word Naomi means my delight. In other words, instead call me Mara, which means bitter. Guys, that's telling. I mean, she gave herself a new name and names in that day would be connected to identity or what you're going to do. It's like, it's like this proclamation, if not at times prophetic statement of this is what this person's going to be about. Or this, is how, this name defines or describes this person. She goes from believing that she's, my, that she's my delight, that maybe God's delight, she now goes to bitter, straight up just bitter. And then she gives the, ex, the explanation why. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call, why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Sounded familiar yet? Now that last part, maybe we'd sit there, I, I'm not going to answer that part. We're in church. I'm not going to be honest. Like, I'm not going to really confess to a whole community that I'm feeling bitter. Friends, I'm convinced that until we can do that with whoever it is that shows up in this community, then we're not really experiencing the fullness of what God wants us to be as the church. No masks to say, hey, this is it. This is where I'm at. And how beautiful would it be that no matter what, we know that we can actually trust one another with what it is that we share. And that when we share it, it's not this automatic, well, get your mind right and change your thoughts because you should show more respect to God. Maybe in that moment we just get quiet and we hurt with them, all the while trying to point them back to the grace and mercy and joy that comes with Jesus. And then we get Ruth. Friends, I've told you that I've, over the years, I've struggled with the book of Ruth, but this is the first time it opened up. And maybe God's like, now, finally, you can get it. Oh, praise the Lord. Man, this, 
young lady, there's something about her. We don't really know much about her until she's mentioned here in chapter one, but we do know that she grew up in Moab among false gods and false teachings. And then there's this meeting between her and Malan, and, and then they get married, and then the, can you imagine these dreams that we get to have a family, we get to have kiddos, a bunch of babies? And then when you have a bunch of babies, you realize, wow, man, I used to be rested. But 10 years has gone by, no babies. And in this day, in this culture, this is a huge shame. For 10 years, no babies. These were the dreams, and yet no babies. So it almost feels like the dreams crashed. Like the dreams you always thought, well, I know this is what I'm supposed to do, and so far it looks like it's all coming together, and now it's not. Have you ever had a dream die out because it didn't happen when you thought it would? Is this making sense to anybody yet? And then the unexpected happens. Her husband dies. And now she's left without a husband and no children of her own. Like I said, Naomi then encourages, go back and restart your life. And then you look at the resolve of Ruth. In chapter 1, verse 16 and 7, she says this. 16 and 17, I'm sorry. Do not urge me to leave you or, ret or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Guys, I gotta be honest, that's a huge statement. For her to say, I'm giving up all these other gods and I'm saying that your God is now my God. She didn't just say, I'm gonna follow you and I'm gonna follow your God. But she says it personally. It's like, your God is now my God. And I sit and go, what was it about Naomi or what was it about life before all this tragedy happened or in the midst of the tragedy where Ruth, instead of looking at Naomi's God and saying, I want nothing to do, you, do with you, is willing to leave everything behind and to go where Naomi goes and to claim Naomi's God as her own God. Followers of Jesus, it's in the times when we struggle, it's in the trials that we go through that is the best opportunity as a witness and testimony to the world that Jesus actually makes a difference. It is high time for us to pull back from the mentality that the bad things have happened and God's going to work so that I can get more comfortable and have more comfort. No, no, no. What if God's suddenly going, I need you, my follower who gave up everything to come after me. I need your life to be a witness and testimony of my goodness and greatness in the midst of the storm, not just before or after they show up. What if God is sitting there and he took you seriously when he said, my life belongs to you? I deny myself, I pick up my cross, I follow you. No matter what I go through, may my life be a testimony of the goodness and greatness of God. What if, verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And may the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And she sounds all in. There's nothing that she's holding back. I go where you go. I live where you live. I will die with where you die. And your God will be my God. And if you remember when we talked about Ruth in this passage, we thought, what if this was the declaration of every person who calls himself a follower of Jesus? 
That God, whatever you say is right, is right. Whatever you say is wrong, is wrong. Where you say to go, I go. When you stop, I stop. I deny self, I pick up cross, I follow. I declare everything else as worthless to me that I might know you. I look at Ruth and I go, man, I think that's the, those are the words that we as disciples should be saying to Jesus no matter what. And friends, it's not just about knowing Jesus so we can be blessed by Jesus. It's knowing Jesus so that we can know Jesus. So know Jesus so we can follow him and we can love him and be loved by him. And whatever he desires to give, it's up to him. And whatever, whatever he desires to hold back, it's because he's good and he's great. And as much as the world seems like it's going into chaos, God is not a God of chaos, but a God of order. And he sets things up for his family, his kids, us, his church. Obey, follow, live in mission. All the rest of the world, friends, he's already worked out human history. So take a breath. And it's all summed up in the word so. What about Boaz? You don't meet him until chapter two. By then, he's already an older guy. Seems like he's pretty wealthy because he owns this pretty massive field. He's working the ground. So I know he's a business owner. I'm guessing he's grown up in Bethlehem since that's where his field is. It kind of be passed on from generation to generation. But when you look at little sneak peeks in the book of Ruth, you also see that he's a very caring person. I mean, the way that he takes care of his workers... He makes sure that they have food while they're working and he sits with them while, and he eats with them. It's not, hey, you go do my work. I'm gonna sit back here in my sweet little ivory tower office and I'm gonna go live my life. No, he's in the midst of all of it. And then he's also generous with this young little, young little female or young little woman who's over here going, hey, I don't know what I'm supposed to do because we came back to Bethlehem. I'm a Moabitess. And he looks upon this woman and shows what? Generosity and grace and concern and compassion. And looks at his workers and says, Shh, don't say anything. When you go through, don't go to the edges. Make sure she has something that she can work and glean. But also, I want you to take the things that you take and just kind of drop a bunch. As you go through, drop a bunch so she can gather it up. Why not tell her? Why not just walk up to her and just give it to her? Guys, isn't there something honorable in a good day's work? For some, isn't it difficult to receive? And it's usually the ones who like to give. The ones who love to give are the ones who usually have the hardest time to receive help because you've always been the one that helps. And yet we all come to points in life where we just need to submit and, sum- and just surrender and go, okay, I need your help. But what if we get creative and we still allow a person the dignity to work? Work is not the result of the fall. Work was given before the fall happened in Genesis 3. It's an audible thing. So we know as a business owner, there's no mention of a wife or children or family. Nothing's ever mentioned that, they were mar- or that he was married. And we looked in the passage, thought that, she's, that he's already much older than Ruth. And so he's been single for a long time. Maybe longer than he expected. Anybody getting this so far? And maybe for some, you all you've wanted a relationship and with a special someone. You're wondering what the heck's what the heck is happening? And yet what we'll find is God's fulfillment of everything in that word, so. Everything that happened up to that point is summed up in so. 
Not only was he one who showed generosity and compassion and cared for his workers, but he was also known as trustworthy. In Ruth chapter 3, verse 18, Naomi says this to Ruth. says, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the, settle the matter today. So he's an honorable guy. So if I was to sum up everything I just, I just summed up, in my own words, I wrote this in my, in my notes. I said, these were ordinary people going through ordinary life, yet unaware they were in the extraordinary care of an extraordinary God. Let me say it again. These, these, these were ordinary people going through ordinary life, yet unaware they were in the extraordinary care of an extraordinary God. Friends, I am convinced we are less aware of the majority of what it is that God is doing in our lives and around us to provide and to care for us than we are aware of when it is that he steps in. He is extraordinary, and he is extraordinarily good at caring for us. So in Ruth chapter 4, verse 13, go past that one word. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Ten years, friends, at least years waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Friends, for those who are here, that you're in this place, and man, you just wish that God would allow you to conceive and to have a baby. Can I just encourage you that God still sees, God still knows, and so still applies to you. Like when you said, just I don't, I don't know. Like, what am I, am I doing something wrong? Am I? I don't want you to jump to that. Don't jump to that. What you should do is go, okay, God, I don't understand. And you can be as honest with them as you want to, but don't jump to, well, God must not think I'm going to be a good parent one day. There might be something that God is doing to prepare you to become the even better parent than you ever thought that you could be. All I want to do is just keep an encouragement. Just wait. Just hang on. Don't jump to conclusions of lack of care or you must be doing something wrong or there's sin in your life. Just wait. Because God's soul is coming. The Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Jeremiah 29, 11, the first part. I say this and I'll bring this back to this verse. For I know. Guys, hold on to that. This is God saying it. It's like, but God, I don't, I don't know. He's like, but I know. I know. The one who's outside of time, the one who sees past, present, and future as if it's one moment in one instant. When we're just trying to guess, guys, what do we actually know except what has already happened? I don't know what's going to happen in four seconds from now. I don't know what's going to happen in four years from now. What I know is what has happened, but what God knows is all. He says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. So take it personal as he spoke this to the people of Israel while they're in exile because of their rebellion. But he still says, he goes, I know the plans I have for you. It doesn't end with you being there. I know what I'm doing. I know the plans I have for you. Friends, this morning I was reading in Isaiah 6. 
And it's a passage I, I love. I just absolutely love Isaiah chapter six and where Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, in this national tragedy, this year of the national tragedy, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. That means when the tragedy happens, God's still in charge. He's high and exalted. He's not bound by the circumstances. He's above it. He's in charge over it. High and lifted in the train of his robe, or just the hem of his robe, filled the temple with glory. And he says, and I saw these seraphim. The seraphim are the fiery angels, the angels that are on fire and like it. And these fiery angels are looking at one another. And it, I used to think, well, there just must be two because it says, said one to another. Guys, I don't think there's just two. I think there's myriads, thousands upon thousands. And one says to them, holy, holy, holy. And then one over here screams it back to all the massive myriads of angels who are on fire and they're liking it. No, 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 holy, holy. It's like they're trying to compete with one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Friends, you realize that angelic beings have never been bored in the presence of God saying the same thing over and over and over because he is that awesome. It says when he, when he spoke, the, the ground shook as if the thunder, as if the thunder just rolled. It's just the, the whole ground is shaking. And what's Isaiah's response? He took a selfie with Jesus says, blessed. Or did he sit there and go, oh man, I'm loved. He really loves me. Nope. What does he say? Woe is me. In other words, he's saying, I'm dead. I'm going to die. Right now, I'm going to die. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live, among a, I live among a people of unclean lips, and I'm looking upon God. I'm going to die. And when you look at what the response is, it says one of the seraphim, the fiery ones, takes a, a coal from the altar with tongs, which I'm not quite sure I need the tongs because they're all on fire, but there's the tongs, and goes flying up to Isaiah and touches his lips. Why? Because he just said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And burning his lips, that core, that fire would be the sense or this picture of purification. It says that which you think is impure, God will make pure. Your guilt has been taken away. Your sin has been atoned for. Guys, it's a picture of what it is that Jesus does for us. And the very next statement is, hey, who's going to go for us? And Isaiah's response was, send me. I'll do it. I'll go. I'll go. It wasn't... Mm, where are we going? How long is it going to be? Is there air conditioning? <laughs> it's like his first response, he's just jumping. Why? Because he got to see God. And God, instead of killing him, made him pure in his sight. How could you not want to go and share that? And friends, we think that that's just the experience of Isaiah, but isn't that our experience as the followers of Jesus? When God made himself known to us, we're, we're, we are what? We are aware of our sin, and I should die before this holy God. And yet God, in his mercy and grace, purifies me through Jesus so that my sin is atoned for, my guilt is taken away, and I can stand before God as holy. This holy, holy, holy being, he now makes us holy because of Jesus. And he says, who's going to go for us? 
And our response should always be, I'll do it wherever you want. I'll do it wherever you go. When that God says, I know the plans I have for you, where angels who are on fire are falling in worship before that God, I think we can find some confidence in the fact that he knows. You may not see it yet. He's not done with it yet. But until then, we worship and we go. We worship and we go. Now to verse 14, Ruth 4. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. I love the fact that she had some friends in her life that would say that. Because remember when she showed up? Shows back up home. Chapter 1, verse 21. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me my delight when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Man, that's how she felt when she showed up. And now she's sitting there. Ruth is married, baby boy. And some friends walk up. Not judgmental, but they just say this. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you. Isn't that beautiful? What a beautiful group of friends. Like they saw that. I'm guessing that Naomi's already seen it. And as they said that, maybe Naomi has this look on her face like, I know. I know. But what if there was also this sisterhood between them where they're looking and going, remember? They're like, yeah, I remember. And they just shared the story, and they let Naomi reshare the story of everything she'd experienced in that so time. But what a beautiful group of women that they would actually bring her back to worship God. Blessed be the Lord. That's the first thing that they said. Bring it back to praising God, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. So my question for us is, do we have those people in our life who will sit with us in our hurt, who will walk with us on our journey, who will remind us of God's faithfulness through it all, and who stand with us in praise to God for all that he has done? Do you have those people in your life? Because if you don't, if you're not allowing people in, that when you go through that part where you're trying to question, you're starting to question what it is that God's doing or why he let something happen, if you're not hearing other people who love Jesus speak into your life, you're not sharing the hurt, you're not sharing the pain, then what is it that's drawing you back to Christ? It's like, well, the Holy Spirit, of course it's the Holy Spirit, but whom does the Holy Spirit use often, if not the majority of the time? Us. I'm open. This is what I'm going through. And as I've got brothers that I share that with, they then speak into my life. They'll pray over me. Then one will share a story that sounds so familiar. It's like I feel like I'm listening to myself. And they'll constantly remind me, but what they'll do is first, they will just sit and hurt with me. They'll, I'll feel heard. But they won't let me wander. Get back over here. And they keep moving me in the direction where Jesus is. By a show of hands, how many of you have had, that per- have had that situation happen in your life? And that person, that as hard as it got, what they did was so monumental in your life and beyond value because what did they do? They simply prayed and kept pushing you back to facing Jesus in the midst of it. Anybody have that? 
You would never give that up, right? You've seen the beauty of it, so now be that person who does it for someone else. Constantly look for the opportunities. We're sitting going, okay, this is how God has blessed me. This is how God has helped me. And so let me, God, use me to be that person who will hurt with the hurt, who will listen to those who feel like they have no voice, but will point them to God. Friends, it's one thing for us to say, hey, I love people where they're at. But friends, if we just say, I love them where they're at, but I'm, I don't love them enough to point them to righteousness and truth and goodness and morality and what God has set up as true, that is not love. But it's also not love to look upon people who are confused or hurting or even don't even like Christians for some odd reason to then look upon them in judgment without grace and mercy. Friends, some of you land on grace and mercy, you swim in it. And yet you don't point them to truth. And honestly, you're not loving their soul because you're allowing them to just bobble in the water of confusion and still have to answer to God one day. And there's some of you just, you love the judgmental side because they'll stand on the truth but you hold on to it so hard that if someone doesn't agree with you, then when, they, when they're standing over here, it's almost like you feel it's your responsibility to break them. Friends, there is one rock. When every, when, there's one rock that is a rock of stumbling. There's one rock that causes the crashing of the, of the soul of humanity. That's Jesus. But our role, the church... Love them like Jesus and point them to Jesus and get them to the point where they're surrendering to Jesus who is grace and truth. He is the epitome of both. And we're called to live in the dance of both. Friends, you have those people in your life who have done that and will do that and are you that person for others? Continue on, verse 14. Then the woman said, the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And all the ladies said, amen. Guys, this is a massive statement. Because in this culture, everyone desired to have sons. To pass on the inheritance to some sons. Sons, it's a blessing. There's still cultures today. Sons are, sons are elevated. Daughters, not as much. And here comes her friends. Do so you remember Ruth, who loves you better and more than seven sons? In the Old Testament, the number seven is the number of completeness. So in other words, Ruth loves you completely. Oh, God has blessed you with her. Friends, may we be the community, the type of community where I could sit there and go, ladies, sisters, I am so thankful for you. And I'm so thankful for the way that God has made you. And this community would not be right without you and your involvement in it and your ability to lead ministries, to be used by God in great ways and not just back behind the scenes, but out in the front, show us some things. And gentlemen, we should have that same attitude. But man, I also want to look at you, and I'm so thankful for my brothers. 
I'm so thankful for what it is I see that God does in you and how he's growing you and has grown you and the gifts and the talents that he calls you to lead with and to make an impact for Jesus. And sisters, I pray that you look at them not as competition, but as brothers. We're all in this together. Moving forward to what God has called us, men and women, male and female, to do together. To show the world this is what a united front looks like. Driven by the grace and the truth of Jesus. Instead of trying to compete with one another, who is more necessary? We actually realize that God made both, and so both must be necessary. And some may need to go off their high horse and just realize that God created both for his purpose and for his glory and for his will to be accomplished. But who's this redeemer that, she, that they're talking about? Some would think that it's Boaz, this older guy, and maybe Boaz might be even the same age, if not older than Ruth. But if he's older than Ruth, then how is he going to take care of Ruth in her old, old age if he's probably going to die off first? So I don't think that they're talking about Boaz. I think that they're talking about this little grandson. I think, I think, I think it's the reminder that Obed shall be to you a restore of life and a nourisher of your old age. In other words, where you were freaking out, you don't have a husband, and you didn't have any, I mean, your sons are gone, and yet God has provided for you that when you are old, you will have a redeemer who will care for you and make sure that you're taken care of. Wow. And ultimately, friends, we apply this to us. He shall be to you a restore of life and a nourisher of your old age. Who would that be for us? Jesus. You go from Obed, well, Boaz to Obed, Obed to Jesse, Jesse to David, then follow the lineage, which we will do on our Christmas Eve Eve service. That's the message, the genealogy of Jesus. Please don't keep that, don't let that keep you from coming. <laughs> Guys, I think there's something beautiful about the, the lineage of Christ. But it points us to Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, 16 to 19, he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as, he, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, he sent me to redeem. He's the redeemer. That's what he does. And then watch Naomi's response to their words. Verse 16, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Naomi, no husband, no sons, no grandbabies. And then so happens, and she's holding a little grandson. And some scholars, and most scholars that I read actually believe this is kind of a legal thing. This is a legal adoption. Where, where Obed would be known as Naomi's son as well as Ruth's son. And when she looked into his little face, how much of her life do you think ran through her mind? And she's just looking in the face of this little grandbaby. And how she went from, 
I was here, I grew up here, I know everyone here in this little tiny little town. Then I got married, and we had to leave because we didn't, couldn't afford it. Then I lost everything. I came back all bitter. I didn't know what was going to happen. I was freaking out. I was mad at God because I thought God was doing something to me. And now I'm holding this because so happened. Verse 17, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. Her friends named him. I've never, I've, guys, how often? Some of you have not let me name your kid. There's a few of you moms, I knew you were going to have a baby boy, and I'm like, I've got a great name for you. Brian with an I. I'll even let you go Brian with a Y. And no one has taken me up on that. But the community, her community names the baby. You should name him Obed. Yes, yes. So, the next one of you that's pregnant, we all want to name your baby. We're going to get really creative, like the Hulk or something. Obed's name, you know what it means? One who serves. One who serves. When we look at the end of verse 17, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David, who's in the lineage of Jesus. And then you look at Jesus and what it is that he says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. One who serves. Why is this so important? Because there's something about the Redeemer there's a characteristic trait about the Redeemer that is so important for us to see. The Redeemer serves. We have a beautiful, loving, service-driven, perfect, gracious, loving God. Obed shows up. And what do they say about him again? She shall be to, or sorry, he, he shall be to a restore of life and a nourisher of your old age. Think about it. One baby shows up, and everything's changed. Oh, wait a minute. Doesn't that sound familiar? Isn't it amazing how everything can be changed because one baby shows up? Guys, when you start looking in the Old Testament, do you actually see Jesus just kind of oozing out of the pages? Friends, that's why it's so important for us to read the whole Bible, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament, for we will get a better grasp and understanding of Jesus when we spend time with him in the full counsel of God. As one commentator said, when he's summing up or summarizing the book of Ruth, he simply said this, deep sorrow turned into radiant joy. Emptiness gave way to fullness. Wow, aren't those powerful? Just a small, quick little statement to summarize the book of Ruth. So as the worship team comes back up, can I ask you a couple questions? Have you experienced loss? Loss of a child? Loss of a spouse? Loss of a parent? Family member? Friend? Have you experienced the unexpected of financial hardship? An unexpected move? Just life hits and you never thought I would actually have to go through this. Have you experienced the pain that comes with having to wait for what you've always wanted? You've always, you've always wanted maybe a spouse or kids or security, acceptance, love. Can I read to you from Isaiah 43, 18 to 
21, actually. Sorry, Gary, I think I gave you the wrong passage. But 18 to verse 21 in Isaiah 43 says this, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Oh, hold on to that. And then let's listen to the next part. Now it springs forth. Now. Do, not, do you not perceive it? It's like God's sitting there going, you don't, see me, you don't see what I'm doing right now? And friends, I'm convinced we see less of what God is doing now than more. He's like, pay attention. We should be asking God every day, God, show me, what did you do today? At the end of the day, reflect, God, show me, what did you do today? Give me a glimpse, one thing that maybe I skipped over because it seemed too ordinary. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. There aren't usually a lot of rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. We have a good God. Guys, rivers in the Rivers in the desert don't happen all that often. He's like, well, but what about flash floods? Well, of course, that's when the rain comes. But there's a reason that when, when the desert isn't always known as the, being the, the most fruitful place. That's why there's these things called oasis. That when you find one, you go, oh, thank goodness. Because there's nothing else. And God's like, I'll make rivers in the middle of the, wild, or in the, in the, middle of the desert. I'll provide for you in the driest parts. Why? Because you're my chosen people. So, we come back to that word that we started with. So. For those who've experienced loss, for those who've waited and waited and waited and waited, for those who've had life throw at you the unexpected and the unimaginable, for those who've been bound by the fear of what now or what's next, for those who've wandered away, for those who've become bitter and hurt, for those whose joy in life have been robbed. You finish with this passage. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I'll restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Because the Redeemer restores. So what's our response? As I read some of the words for this final song we're going to sing, I thought, man, this is perfect. Listen to these words. Behold, the king has come. Divinity incarnate, creator of the world, breathing our air. Behold, what light has come, and the dark cannot contain it. The savior of the world is finally here. So that first statement that I made, I now want to apply it to us. We are ordinary people going through ordinary life, yet often unaware that we are in the extraordinary care of an extraordinary God and therefore are living an extraordinary life. 
Friends, there's a redemptive story about you and about me. That for some of you, the hurt, you sit there and go, how could a loving God allow bad things to happen? How could a loving God allow evil to happen? All the while, never actually pointing the finger to the people who are actually responsible for it, which is us. You say, oh, if God would just get rid of the evil. Well, if God were to do that, then he gets rid of all of us. And for you not to see that, that's an arrogance. Because all of a sudden, you found yourself a little bit what? Mightier than everyone else, because you are now the standard, and the rest of the evil need to go. And yet, before God, all of us are evil. All of us sinned before a holy God, and mercy and grace is necessary for all of us. And friends, all of life is part of the story. But hold on. God's redemptive work is coming. He started it. He'll finish it. So what's our response? So what do we do until we see so? We say these words as we get ready to sing them. Oh, come, let us adore him. Come, let us adore him. Why? For he alone is worthy. Christ the Lord. Father, as we come back into a time of worship where we sing to you, thank you. Thank you for the redemptive story found in the book of Ruth. Thank you for how you meet us and care for us. And God, even for some that they're not in that, they don't see the fruition, they don't see the fulfillment where they can sit there and say, well, so this is the good that came from it. God, give them hope to continue. But whether we're on the mountaintop or the valley, whether we're just kind of trudging through life, just like one step in front of the other, or we're celebrating the moment, God, may all of us say the same thing and all of us approach you in the same manner. Worship that is worthy of you. Come, let us adore him. Come, let us adore him, for he alone is worthy. Christ the Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen. Love you all more than you know.